Have I Multiple told you that I'm, I'm good friends with 25 letters of the alphabet? Here it comes. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> Did we record that? There's our lead right there. Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Hey listeners, welcome back to the Oxygen Starved Podcast, where we bring you your ABCs, adventure books, and conversation from 11,000 feet in the beautiful, snowy, and icy, and ski-worthy Eastern Sierra. <laughs> and uh, I am, of course, your host, Christopher, and with me is my co-host... Stacy. And of course, we are, as always, joined by producer Doug. Hey, Doug. Hi, Doug. Good afternoon. Happy holidays. Thank happy, you. Happy holidays. It's that time of year. And that means we are at our, can you believe it, our fourth annual Top Picks of the Year I, episode. I can't believe it. They keep coming faster and faster. With our, and this guy keeps coming back now four years in a row. I don't, I don't know why. why. <laughs> <laughs> but our most repeat guest ever, who we just interrupted from drinking a sip of water, Dave Leonard from the Bookie Joint in Mammoth. Dave, if you'd like to drink water before you say hello, you can. No, that's okay. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Dave. It's good to be here, Stacy, and good to be here, Christopher. Thank you. Thank and, uh, you. Thanks for for enduring this <laughs> another for another year. It's it's my pleasure. That, <laughs> you know, at least we're over the um, the COVID thing where we all had to be in different. I know spots. That was that was a bad one. Yeah, that was hard. It's nice to be able to do it in person around a table, right? Definitely, because we can laugh and poke fun at each other and tell jokes, tell <laughs> jokes, which is, has already begun, and yeah. poke each other, as well. and poke yeah. each other, yeah, and kick each other in the foot. Look, it's um, it's one of our favorite episodes to do because it makes us revisit what we've read during the year and narrow our picks down five each. Yep, which we're going to share on this episode, listeners. You don't have to write anything down if you're driving or what have you. We will have all of these on our website and links to it from our Instagram and Facebook. And um, these are all recent books, so you can find them in the library or at your local bookseller like the Bookie Joint in Mammoth Lakes. Yes. Right, Dave? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> we, we will have all of them there. Thank you. So uh, let's not drag this out. Let's get right into the books, let's right? Let's do well, it. We liked it in 2022. And so, Stace, last time, last year, you began. I did. So this year, we thought I'm we'd I'm going to go last. You're moving to the end of the line. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. My pleasure. <laughs> so we're going to kick it right over to uh, to Dave from Bookie Joint. Dave, what have you been reading that you liked the most this year? All right. Well, I picked five kind of different different things. I try to go for different genres. Good. Um, and I, should I should, do you want to know all five of them at the start or just the first one? No, just do it okay. one at a time. The first one is called Portable Magic by Emma Smith. Right. And it's the full title is Portable Magic, A His History of Books and Their Readers. Um, and it's a book about books, which is one of my favorite things. <laughs> um, one of all of our favorite things. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of a celebration of the physical form of the book yeah. as much as the content of the book. Right. Um, 
and how the two are linked, you know, that, um, you know, different kinds of books look a different sort of way, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And how it adds to the experience of reading a book. Right. Um, The title comes from Stephen King's memoir uh, on writing, Mm-hmm. Um, where he describes books as a unique, uniquely portable magic. Um, have you read the, that memoir? I'm familiar with yeah, it. It's, it's I didn't know that's good. where the title came that's from. That's where though. it came It's appropriate. From. Yes. Um, and Emma Smith um, explores the idea of book reading from the book's perspective. Um, the idea of bookhood mm-hmm. or what makes a book a book. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a scholar. She's the... Um, uh, the professor of Shakespeare studies at Oxford. So, so she's seen a, quite a few good books herself. She knows her way around a book, <laughs> um, but um, it's a very readable, it's not sort of a scholarly right. sort of book. Um, it's pretty entertaining, and um, I like her, her writing style. Mm-hmm. Um, she uses words that are not generally used a lot of the time, um, but in a sort of playful way. Um, like in the first couple of pages, she uses the word "ept" um, as the. Have you ever heard that word? Yes. Ept, like E P T, and it's the opposite of inept. Yeah. Oh. So it's like competent to be. I didn't. Ept. I didn't know ept was a. Yeah. I knew. Okay. Go on. <laughs> yeah, but it, I think it's, it sort of makes me smile to see words that I just don't. I, or I've never seen before. Now, is that, um, uh, it, uh, it also kind of seems like a very Oxford scholar kind of way to write, to, yeah. right? to, to pull these little obscure words out and remind the reader that they exist. Or right. remind the reader that she's smarter than them. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think she doesn't. It's not like she's talking down to people, though. Um, so um, I, I love that, though. Right. Because I, I love learning new words. Mm-hmm. And... I used to look them up in the dictionary and then write in the dictionary the date I looked them up when I was a kid. Aww. So, Do you still have it? No, I don't, <laughs> but I, I wish I did. But I love that. And That's now awesome. I have a new word. Yeah. Yes. You have to use it. Ept. Um, <laughs> so, You're going last. You have plenty of time to figure <laughs> out how to use it in a sentence. Yeah, to, Sorry, Dave. Go back. <laughs> all right. So um, you'll like this bit because you haven't, you haven't read this yet. No, but, it's on my nightstand. Um, <clears throat> she talks about where, how she first started to appreciate books through her um, weekly visits to her library. Um, and I wrote down a quote from, from the book. Um, she said, my library tactic was a kind of reading triage quickly assessing which books might be consumed there and then, reserving the precious places on my library card for stories that I could savor during the week. For me, it was the public library that taught me about books as objects as well as about fantastic worlds. It's, it's pretty Aww. good. Huh? That's a great quote. Yeah, it it's, is. Really it's a great sentiment, too, and it still exists in readers today. You well, see it in the library today. I think it would resonate with a lot of people who visit the library. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, the reading triage bit is pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, so when I read it, I was—I mean, I could go into all the different chapters. There's mm-hmm. a lot of, and you can kind of read them at random, basically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they're really, really interesting chapters. But it kind of made me think about um, why I enjoyed reading physical books, and um, what it was. Um, you know, I think about books that I were important to me, and I always think about the physical copy that I read. Right, and it's probably the same for for, for you mm-hmm. too. Yeah, um, especially an older book. 
Um, the first book that I really remember, that I really, really enjoyed, really loved, was The Lord of the Rings. Um, and it probably a lot of people mm -hmm. would be in the same position. Mm -hmm. And I always think of that particular copy. Edition. Edition, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I would stay up way past my bedtime under the covers with a <laughs> flashlight reading it. Um, really annoyed the wife. But, <laughs> you, uh, the, uh, Do you still have it? Did you like pass I, it on to I your, don't. Kid, your kids? I don't. Actually, I was looking it up earlier and I, I found... Um, I think I found the copy. Yeah, it was this one. That was Aww. the. It was kind of a, a crazy. It was from the um, the original movie, the Ralph Bakshi one, mm -hmm. which was kind of a crazy yeah. movie. Um, it was part um, animated. And part, yeah, I remember uh, that. Yeah. And it, it was only half the movie, basically. Right. Yeah. Um, but I I always think of that, and and whenever it's, I, you know that's sort of for me the real Lord of the Rings, even mm -hmm. though it's kind of a cheesy cover it's you have a really it, it, yeah it, it is a, for the listeners it is a kind of a cheesy 70-ish 60s cover almost a pulp paperback almost kind of yeah it was super mm -hmm. thick yeah, yeah super thick um but i like what you just described it's kind of like this visceral relationship you have with this object because the object isn't just an object the object is magic right yeah yes yeah. so the and so the form of the book captures the the historical and cultural moment of, that it was uh, published, and it's part of the reading experience of, yeah. um, of, of reading it. Um, uh, so the physical engagement of a book with our senses, even subconsciously, is part of the magic of the physical books. Um, and, you know, I, I get why a lot of people like e-books, but I, I've tried reading a couple of them, and I just don't enjoy it. And, um, <laughs> I, I, I like the, the ability to... Pass it on to someone, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, to share that experience yeah. with someone. Um, so, um, and what else happens in the book? There, uh, oh, yeah, she talks about um, emotions running high about um, people mistreating books by, like, perhaps dog earing, dog earing the covers, uh, the, the pages. That's yeah. quite a. That is quite a thing. I, <laughs> I, I mean. I think you're either a, a person who folds the pages or you're a person mm. that uses a, I mean, what, are you a folder? Are you guys folders of pages or are you bookmark people? Bookmarks. You're a bookmark, bookmark. person. Are yes. you, what about you? I'm a little of both. I will fold my own books. If it's a library book or a friend's book, I've always treated it with respect, right? And Same. I need to say that out loud being the county library director. But at home, I'm a, I'm also a believer in kind of what you were just referring to, Dave, that like, you know, these books have power and, uh, you know, a, it's a lasting relationship over time. And so I love going to the shelf, and I do this in used bookstores too, and pulling a book off the shelf and seeing if it's been dog-eared or written in because that means someone else has had an experience with it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. A visceral connected experience reading that like and i kind of like that the book can be reread and reread by different people mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and it affects us all in a different way you know but we yeah. uh, to your point might be marking up the dictionary or mm -hmm. folding a page or something i don't know there's just something in that for me yeah i i'm i'm like you are if i'm if it's a somebody else's or it's a library book i use a bookmark but if it's my own personal book i fold i underline mm -hmm. whatever i need to yeah. do but my daughter, Tessa, she is 
oh my God, don't you dare fold a page in my book. You better use a bookmark. <laughs> right. She is very passionate about the bookmark. So, That's great. Yes. Um, and then what else? She, um, so it's the history of the book in human hands and the relationship between the book and the reader, which is unique to each right. reader. Right. And um, that books are important because they are everyday objects, not because they are too valuable to touch. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so what else? She focuses on the personal relationship between the book and the reader, the connectedness between the form of the book and the content, and um, the act of reading leaves both the book and the reader changed. I think so. so. When you have a cut, my copy yeah. of um, Emma Smith's book, Portable <laughs> Magic, has my fingerprints and my DNA on it. Right. Um, so, and I. So we've both been changed. Yeah. Parties. Um, obviously, you know, I haven't turned over the page corners because that was <laughs> savage. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the. But do you remember this, Dave? Because you've been a bookseller a while. Back when the Kindle first became popular, you know, there were other e-readers out there and e-books have been around for about 20 years now. Yeah. But it was the late 2000s when Amazon and the Kindle really hit the marketplace. And every thought, everyone, including us in libraries, were kind of like predicting the death of the book. And guess what didn't happen? I mean, there's a lot of e-readers out there now. I read e-books mm -hmm. and print books, of course, but books are still around. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and part of it is that the publishers have changed the way they um, like the the product as right. well um, to make it more appealing for people to right. to, to get the physical uh, book. Um, it's still nicer to get as I, I think as a as a gift for mm -hmm. someone um, makes a great Christmas gift. Um, <laughs> Any one of these titles will. Yes. Um, <laughs> so the, I, I don't know how we are for time, but there was only um, she. The last thing I was going to say about this was that she she answers her own question at the end of what makes a book a book, and she says, a book becomes a book in the hands of its readers. It is an interactive object. A book that is not handled and read is not really a book at all. I would love that quote, and every librarian would love that quote, because we house so many older books on purpose. We heat them, we air condition them, we put them in light during the day and we dust them. Um, but it's only when someone picks it off the shelf that it can really have an impact. So that's a great, right. it's a great, mm -hmm. that great it's line. not a dead thing. Right. That's, that's a Milton quote, right? That, uh, uh, books are not absolutely dead things. There you go. Cool. That's a great first pick. Yep. Okay. Off to a good start. Okay. So um, my second one, was Liberation Day by George Saunders. Um, has anyone read this? Nope. We've no. read him, though. We've read him. Be, though, and we've yeah. talked about him on the podcast. A couple podcast. of times, yeah. yeah. Which, which one did you read? Win we did... Was um, it winter? Something about... It we was did 10th of December. Yeah. Oh, that was and a great one. I think I talked... We talked about Lincoln and the Bardo at one yes. point. Yeah. And he went on that hiking trip with Nick... Oh, right on the Nick the guy... Nick, Nick the guy. 
Yeah. We <laughs> talked about it earlier this year. We Offerman. Make, make Offerman. Uh, Offerman. He's, he is jo- George Saunders and Nick Offerman are good friends. Oh, okay. And Nick Offerman references a trip they all went on in his last book. Okay. Which came out Hiking this summer. Hiking and rafting. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, at least you're familiar with his style. Um, he, um, I think he's, he's the best short story writer around mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not complete. He's not for everyone. I could see some people not liking him um, at all. He's, you know, um, he, he's brilliant, but he's also unconventional, challenging, difficult sometimes. Um, but, um, I, I always find that his stories come back to me days later. I start, I think about them and they really, really stick with you. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a collection of nine stories. Um, they're all, there's, there's a slight link between them in the title, the, uh, Liberation Day kind of links them in some way. Okay. Um, but they are quite you know they're quite different too um so typically he'll throw you in at the deep end and it takes several pages to get any idea what's going on you have no <laughs> idea for the first time <laughs> like, what is this sounds like me on a monday morning right. um his his language and the syntax is often odd discordant um and can you know can, and i think it um reflects the confused state of mind of his protagonists um, so on the first page of the first story, he writes this, this sentence. One, one may be unpinioned before the eyes of the upset others and brought to a rather penalty area. What the hell does that oh, mean? Yeah. It's, you have no idea just reading that what it is. And, you know, odd capitalized words and um, things like that. That is a very George Saunders sentence, though. Yes. How many times did you have to read that sentence before you proceeded? I read it several times. (laughs) Um, And it doesn't really, it's better just to go on because then it becomes more obvious uh, what it was he was talking about. Um, So he routinely does that, often in this sort of fragmented uh, mid-thought kind of way. Um, There's usually a slow reveal, often as the characters themselves discover what's going on. Frequently, there is just one outrageous, ridiculous premise after another. Um, but every story is completely immersive and believable. Um, so that title story is set in a sort of dystopian near future where some people, including the narrator, have been enslaved and reprogrammed as storytellers to recount scenes from the past for the entertainment of their uh, owners. And they're physically suspended on a wall, like oh. abandoned puppets. Uh, yeah, it's really grotesque. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> waiting to perform is this kind of living death for them. Um, and, you know, like most of the stories, it's absurd, provocative, thought-provoking, and quite, quite moving when you get to the end of, of each one. Um, and that idea of coercion or being trapped and uh, imprisoned is is a common theme throughout a lot of the stories in it. There's a little bit of an allegory in that first one there. It probably is a writer or an entertainer or a performer or mm-hmm. suspended on a wall waiting to be asked to perform. 
like right. a television. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That, that, that sounds very Saunders. It is. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. Very, yeah. Um, and he has several like that. There's another one where there's a, a ghoul, a guy who plays a ghoul underground in this, this, um, and in, in this giant, um, uh, what are those like Disney World kind of mm-hmm. things? Mm-hmm. Um, but there aren't, and there's no no one to watch their performances. And they just do it over and over again, um, and it sounds it sounds really dire. But a lot of his stuff is is quite it's it's tragic, but it's lighthearted at the same time. Yeah, um, and it makes you it, it, can, it makes you smile and sort of draws you in. Um, and his characters. Um, he never uses, loses sight of the humanity of the, the right. characters, um, and they're usually likable because they're, they're vulnerable as well. Um, and so he he said that the short story is about change. So there's always change in in even, no matter how mm-hmm. short mm-hmm. It, it is. Mm-hmm. The the characters usually have become so aware of whatever their predicament is um, and they're not necessarily redeemed um, but they're liberated in some way um, by an awareness and that's kind of their resolution to their stories. And I think that's where Liberation Day comes, comes through. Mm. But I may be wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I really, I really like uh, George Saunders. Um, he's a complex, original storyteller. He's an author you'd want to spend a day in the mind of. Yeah, and I, th- I mean, I think his ambiguity allows for whatever interpretation you want. Of mm-hmm. you know, and I kind of remember that in Tenth of December, right. all the stories were had this level of absurdity, mm-hmm. like you're describing in this book, but yet. It was just open for your own interpretation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Cool. That's All a right. great second pick. What's okay. a third? I have a third pick. Horse by Geraldine Brooks. And she's another of my favorite authors. Yeah. I've been looking forward to this one. Um, have you read this one? I have oh. not. It just came out this fall, right? It's a big just, book. Yeah. Um, well, it's not thick. Oh, not big um, physically, but, it, yes. but it's, it's, it's a bestseller. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. It's it's a huge bestseller, um, and it's it's of of the five books. This is the one I would recommend to anyone. You really? could everyone would like this book. So um, tell us about it. So um, uh, Geraldine Brooks is um, she's well known for historical fiction, um, and she's really she does a lot of meticulous research, um, and includes a lot of rich historical detail mm-hmm. um, to make. Uh, she's really, really good at bringing the reader to a specific time and place and making it completely believable, even if it's something you, you know, have no interest in. Mm-hmm. I'm not a horsey person, um, and horse is a story of a horse. Um, <laughs> Go uh, figure. Yeah, yeah crazy. <laughs> um, and the horse's name is Lexington. And um, I don't know if you know anything about horse racing, but uh, Lexington was a very famous uh, horse, uh, racehorse from the mid 19th century, um, which was a time when, uh, horse racing was incredibly popular. Mm. Um, and you know, she goes into all of that. Um, but it's, it's not just a story, um, about horse. 
Um, it's about as much about humanity as it, as it is about the horse and as much about race as it is about a racehorse. Mm-hmm. Um, you, she started doing research into it and figured that she couldn't possibly leave that part out of it. Right, yeah. of course. Because it was such a huge, huge part of right. it. Um, it was, you know, the, uh, the horse racing industry was this um, sort of white prestige event, but it was off the backs of mm-hmm. black mm-hmm. Uh, jockeys, trainers, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of them were slaves. Right. Um, it was, this is set kind of about 10 years before the, the Civil War. The Civil War. Um, and um, there's a lot, a lot going on. So, uh, but anyway, the, the structure of the, the book um, is that there are three main interweaving human stories besides that of the, 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 the horse. horse. Uh, the first is set in the present day, and it's the story of Theo, um, a black PhD art history student who discovers an old oil painting of the horse and his black groom um, in a neighbor's giveaway pile and decides to find out more about it. So it's his sort of research into it. Uh, the second is Jess, who is, is also set in the present time, and she's a white Australian zoo- zoologist and osteologist. Do you know what an osteologist is? No I, clue. I, anyone? No. Um, it's someone who reassembles the bones of dead animals. Um, oh, there you go. Yeah, I guess someone's going to do it. I was um, going to say something with bones, osteo, but right. yes. I didn't, couldn't. Yeah. yeah, that's deeper than I thought. No, we have two and, big words. Okay. Oh, yeah. yes. Yes. And, and she finds the skeleton of, um, of a horse that's just marked horse um, in uh, the Smithsonian attic, which was a true story. Um, oh, wow. So some of this stuff is, is like actual real characters, that, including mm-hmm. the horse, and um, others are fictional characters that she made up. Um, and the major story is is also a fictional character of Jarrett, who is, was the enslaved groom. Hmm. And um, unfortunately, it had to be a fictional character because nothing is known, far more is known about the horse than about the any of the, the um, people involved because they were black. Of course, um, yeah. And um, so... Jarrett's story is set in the, the mid-19th century in Kentucky and Louisiana and centers on his unique relationship with Lexington, uh, this legendary racehorse. Um, and Jarrett is uh, bought and sold along with the horse. Hmm. So, oh. um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, you can't leave out ra- you race when, right. you know, if that's part of the story. Um, and both endure great cruelty um but they have this extraordinary bond between them um and so uh geraldine brooks interweaves the stories so she goes back and forth mm-hmm. between them and it's kind of like a mystery mm-hmm. trying to figure out what's you know what happens to mm-hmm. this to this horse and and to Jarrett. um and but at, at the same time she points out the brutal racism of 19th century southern states but also the continuing racism that Theo has to endure, mm-hmm. even though he um, is from a very privileged bra- background. Mm-hmm. Um, so she sort of ties a lot of that in. And so there's this dark side to the story, but also this kind of touching love story between the boy and his horse. Hmm. Um, and she you know, explores how the past informs 
and intersects with the present. I'm very excited to read this book. You'll like it. You you sold me. Okay. Well, I loved Seabiscuit, right? Mm -hmm. But everything that you're describing in this book is what Seabiscuit was missing. Okay. Right. Right. The whole Mm -hmm. backstory, the whole the whole like Mm -hmm. underside Mm -hmm. of this story. Yeah. And some of it is conjecture, but she did a lot of research into it. Oh, I'm excited. That's what I love about historical fiction. Good historical fiction is the research shows. Yeah. And, um, and I know a lot of people in Mono County have been reading this book, at least two book clubs. Really? Read it already. So, um, it's, I think, uh, it's resonating with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. It's a great, um, book club book. Great. Cool. Okay. You haven't struck out yet, Dave. What's All right. next? Okay, so the f- fourth fourth mm-hmm. one? Yep. Um, this is The World We Make by N.K. Jemison, And um, I, I really like her. She's better known for um, sort of fantasy series where she has these elaborate world building. Um, she, her Broken Earth trilogy was the first, pro- and I think probably the, the only trilogy that won the Hugo Award for every one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and But this this is slightly different. It's more speculative fiction. Mm-hmm. It's set in this world, and but there's something very weird going on below the surface. Um, it's more Neil, like, more like Neil Gaiman more than Neil. Brandon Sanderson. I think it's a good analogy. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you. Does that... <laughs> you, Go on. Okay. <laughs> Space so, is catching up. I I think you'll like this too. Okay. Um, so the the unfortunate thing is with this is this is the second part of a duology. Mm-hmm. So it's the concluding part. It was going to be a trilogy, but um, she turned it into a duology um, for kind of political reasons. I think it was supposed oh. to be a lighthearted. Um, uh, sort of, venture for her um but then she was writing this during trump's presidency mm-hmm. and it was just all too too real right, right. took a mind um, took a turn of its own right it was like well i, I, I the plot that she was going to use actually kind of happened <laughs> and so, um, dystopia becomes real yes Scary. um so anyway it's it's the it's called the great city's geology and it began with the city we became. Um, and I've written stuff out, but it sort of gives away the plot of the, f- the first one. So it, if anyone's going to read it. Um, <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's know. been around for a few years. I think it's, probably it's a lot okay of people too. who like Jemison have already read The City We Became. I just I just finished it and I loved it. I listened to it in the audio. So yeah, feel mm-hmm. free to give away a couple okay. of points. So, um, so it picks up three months after the conclusion of The City We Became. Uh, city of New York is now alive, um, but in a precarious situation because the woman in white, who the the mm-hmm. enemy, um, uh, is uh, spreading hate and distens- uh, d- dissension, um, and still trying to destroy the city. Uh, the soul of the city is represented by several people um, who are avatars of the different boroughs. Um, this makes no sense to you, uh, Stacy. But um, so, um, as well as one avatar who represents the city as a whole. Okay. Um, so she gets to flesh out a lot of the 
the different boroughs mm-hmm. more, and uh, different chapters are from the point of view of different different boroughs. Am I pronouncing that correct? You are pronouncing it correctly. Yeah. Um, uh, but the only one, um, the the avatar for the city itself is called Neek, or New York City, um, and he spent, but he spent most of the first book in a catatonic state, right. so you don't really know him from that. Um, so originally they were all brought together to fight this interdimensional alien who was attacking the city as it was being born. Um, seems silly when I say it now, but it's really good, right? No, it actually, yeah. she does it very, very cleverly. Like the city, cities are born, most of them. So they have kind of at this other level, this other dimension, they have what you say, avatars and a soul. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, daily life goes on right. in this in the main dimension, right? So mm-hmm. and that comes out in the first book. Okay. Yeah. Um but um so we get to see them all again, um, which is nice to revisit them and they right. you know because they have very distinct personalities. Uh, but the book clearly reflects reflects the changes in society between the first and second books. The more overt racism of the Trump presidency um, and attacks on multiculturalism. So it's a reaffirmation of what really makes New York City and, by extension, America great, which is its open embrace of many disparate cultures and ideas. Um, So it champions inclusivity, the idea that we are stronger and better together. and it shows many different faces of, of, of America mm-hmm. and celebrates the strength and diversity of a nation of immigrants. Yeah. Um, you know, we're not all thieves and rapists. Um, but you can cut that bit out, I suppose. <laughs> um, but uh, it's also a fantastical and magical page turner with big ideas. When asked what she hoped people would get from it, Jemison replied, I hope they get a good story. That's mm. all I ever want. So I will just say I'm excited to read this book. I haven't read it yet. Mm-hmm. It's uh, well, In the next three books I'm going to read, I'm going to read this because I just finished City We Became. I, of course, spent much of my life in New York City. I love the city. And she really, in a very clever kind of implausible but plausible turn, you know, creates this world where there's, you know, the the story, the fantasy is happening, but she does also sometimes in broad brush strokes of stereotypes, she does bring out the character of the city and what is happening to it in real time, which is gentrification and people being pushed out of neighborhoods and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, probably the most multicultural city in the country still wrestles with issues of race and immigration. And she, she captures that. And then she just has a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of my favorite things about the last book, which I have no problem giving away, there's like a fight scene and the city's coming alive and, and the avatars are trying to save. There's the five boroughs of New York city, Queens, Brooklyn, the Bronx, Staten Island, and Manhattan. They all have their own accent. They all, you know, she captures that really, really well. And they're all going to kind of fight and save this main avatar and the enemy has infiltrated so much of the city that the buildings are starting to attack. And my favorite, she turns the Starbucks outlets, which are every other block in New York City now, into attack dogs. And so, you know, like the Starbucks are like coming out to attack, you know. And and if you understand gentrification, you know, that actually 
represents something sure. that resonates with people right. who live in urban centers. So I can see why the first book was hugely popular. She's a really skillful writer and very entertaining. So I can't wait to, to read this next yeah. one. And obviously you don't have to... Have lived in New York City or come from to to enjoy it. Right. If so, you know if this has resonated yeah. with so many people. Right. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. Number let's, five. Let's see if you hit it with number five. Do you want a drum roll? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, all right. The fifth one. This this one is just straight sci-fi. Um, it's. Uh, neither of your wheelhouses. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. We know you love sci-fi, and I many do. of our listeners okay. do. I do love sci-fi, and this is one of my favorite sci-fi authors. This is um, this is not going to be a surprise to you. This is uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky, who I think I've picked every time. Mm-hmm. I think you um, have too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's not just his name that I like. Um, it's uh, he's a really prolif- prolific author. Right. He has two series, two major series going right now um, that are um, the third one's going to come out of both of them in early next year. So both of those would be really good to start for anyone who doesn't like starting a series that has not finished, um, because that that is something that happens with sci-fi. Uh, authors, they want to binge. Really? Yeah, they don't yeah. finish. Their... Oh well, or they'll take years and years to okay. finish the last one. Oh, George R. R. Martin with it. Oh, right, is well known for yeah. that. Yeah, um, Patrick Rothfuss as well. Um, but anyway, um, this um, so Eyes of the Void is the second in the Final Architecture series. Uh, following on from the excellent Shards of Earth, which I'm sure I picked before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's uh, it's this sort of huge space opera. Um, uh, and it sort of... He, he has... A f- one thing he's really well known for is very, very strange alien races. Um, and he's great at doing that. Um, so if you, if you like strange alien races, this is one for you. Um, so this one, the second installment, increases the scope of his universe that he's created in the first mm-hmm. one. Um, it adds depth and layering. Um, and this humanity and all intelligent life in the universe is on the brink of extinction, threatened by the architects, who are these incredibly powerful, terrifying, moon-sized alien um, entities that appear without warning, out of out of nowhere is what he calls the unspace, um, and they reshape inhabited planets by into what look like elaborate works of art. And in the process, they destroy them and kill everyone that's mm. there. But um, you you kind of don't know what their thought process might be if they are just these incredibly powerful entities that are just making art and mm-hmm. they have no concept of of there's you know, life on those yes planets. yeah um so the main plot follows this salvage ship the vulture god uh which is manned by a ragtag but very likable multi-species crew um this is in time-honored fashion mm-hmm. um and the main character is idris uh Telemeyer. He was an unconventional and reluctant hero um, who's able to navigate unspace, which is the void of non-existence from where the architects apparently reside. Um, 
And there's this, almost this horror element to it that beneath the already incredibly dangerous reality of life, there's this even more terrifying reality of unspace um, where this where Idris travels. And the mystery of what inhabits unspace is probably the key to saving life in hmm. the universe. Um, this book has everything. Every, uh, epic battles, constant action, mystery, well-drawn characters, horror, and very, very weird aliens. Um, and the final installment comes out, as I said, next year. Um, it's it, if if you like sci-fi, you will love this series. That's great. I would recommend it to anyone who likes sci-fi. There's a lot of people who love space opera in particular. Yes, and it sounds like the. Like the right formula, as you said, kind of like that Joseph Campbell power of myth, you know, quest kind mm-hmm. of yeah. kind of yep. thing. That's great. All right. And that's my lot. Good job, Dave. That is a great, great pick, awesome Dave. Awesome picks. Oh, well, thank I would you. read all those. Wills will especially read the Tchaikovsky, I know. Oh, yeah. I'll read most of them. <laughs> <laughs> Studying with horse. I'm just, you know, sci-fi, just, it's just not for me, but... I enjoy listening about it, hearing right. about it. Well, thank you for putting up and, with that. And I, I feel like I know the author Tchaikovsky now like really well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you can at least recommend them. Yes, there you I go. can, for sure. Christopher, you're up. I'm up. So I've got five books as well. Some of them the listeners will have heard before, so I'm going to kind of just briefly touch on those compared to the ones that they haven't. So... You know, again, there's so many great books this year. It's hard to pick. So I just kind of closed my eyes and put my finger on paper. (laughs) The gazillions of titles I had listed. The first I'm choosing is The First to Die at the End by Adam Silvera. He's a young adult crossover writer. He's a young adult writer. But a lot of his books are read by um, adults, especially in their 20s and 30s. Um, because they still kind of speak to that generation. I'm in my 50s, and I'm a fan of Adam Silvera. Um, He had a bestseller a few years back with They Both Die at the End, in which a company called Deathcast can phone you when you have less than 24 hours to live. The book followed two teens on their last day after they got phone calls, and it got a rebirth by TikTok. It was a bestseller when it came out, but it got a rebirth by TikTok in 2020. Yay. During the pandemic. Power of book talk, as you're always saying. It's huge. It's huge. Um, And I think the pandemic, just the theme of Mm -hmm. death and isolation probably brought it back as well. But anyway, it became a second time bestseller. And I think that was probably one of the catalysts that caused Silvera to revisit that setting in this new book, which I think is even better. The premise of this one, the first to die at the end, is the launch of the Deathcast service seven years prior to the previous book. You know, the people are skeptical that it's real, but the company is intent on a heavily promoted launch to gain new subscribers to sign up for the phone call service. And it all hinges on whether people called that first day do actually end up dying in the 24 hours as the service purports. Um, Again, Silvera brings together two different, this time new adults. They're like 
late teens, early 20s, Mario, who has a life-threatening heart condition that has had him living in fear of dying since he was a kid. He signs up for Death Cast because it takes the weight off his shoulders of worrying if each new day will be his last because he'll get a phone call when it actually is. And maybe he can start living without fear now and pursue his dream of becoming a writer. The other is Valentino, fresh to the city with a modeling contract, no experience in New York, and is moving into his first apartment sight unseen. It's the day of the Death Cast launch, so there's a big promotional part in Times Square where tons of people are gathered in a party mood and Mario and Valentino cross paths, the death cast service launches, violence erupts, and between the two people, a single phone rings. That's the setup. Hmm. What follows is described in one review as a rush of emotion and suspense. And that pretty much captures the essence of what Silvera is able to do with a book in which you pretty much already know something about the ending just from the title, Right. Right. It's no easy feat to bring a reader into a story like this that asks that eternal question, if you knew you were going to die, how would you spend your last day? But he does it so well, you're entranced, and you become invested in these characters. And the jacket blurb for the first book says, Salvera reminds us there's no life without death, no love without loss, and that it's possible to change your whole world in a single day. The only other author who I think did it quite this well, this kind of concept, was Katsuo Ishiguro with Never Let Me Go, which I think a lot of our listeners probably read. One of my favorite books. I have mine I too. I love that book. Right? And there's a little, there's a similarity between that book and the Silvera books. And of course, like that hugely popular book, The First to Die at the End, which I listened to in audio, um, left me with tears in running down my cheeks, which means the book worked. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think, you know, for those of you, and I know I've heard from many people in the last year or so, they're looking for cathartic reads, reads that will make you cry Mm -hmm. because you need to cry over something for some reason. The First to Die at the End by Adam Silvera will probably do it. You know, we talked. We talked a little bit. I don't think on the show, but about the immortalists that yeah. we both read this year, which kind of has a similar theme. You know, the characters they they find out as young children the day they're going to die, and then how that impacts the their lives. You know, I think this is a really maybe a concept that's having a moment. I don't know. Yeah. Over the last few years, I definitely think so. And we did talk about that in the podcast. It was a guest pick right, of right. a few yeah. episodes ago, um, which is, again, it's kind of like, what would you do if you knew? Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, it is kind of a, a theme. What's also great about the Silvera titles is it's, it's a YA author. So yeah. you can read it very quickly. I think Tessa has read, read one of them in, and- yeah. Or ask for him for Christmas, but I know she's talked about that. Great. So that's my first pick. The second pick is a little bit different. Wild Hunt by Emma Seckel, which I have talked on the podcast mm-hmm. before. Came out in August. It's her first novel. The premise is crows return to a remote Scottish island each October 1st and leave by November 1st like clockwork for generations. So much so that the local residents have crafted festivals around this migration as the birds supposedly carry the souls of the dead and if not appeased will reeve wreak havoc on the locals. The story is set a couple years after World War II when the loss of many family and friends to the war is still raw and a trip to the village is still much about who you no longer see as those who you actually run into. This particular year, the number of crows is huge and their menacing begins to step across the line into outright damage and injury to the locals, kind of like the birds, right? (laughs) So um, it doesn't disappoint as a first novel. It's very atmospheric in its setting. It's reflective exploration of grief that so many 
people were suffering from and its slow burn story arc combined to make a very gothic read that I've described as one you want to sink your teeth into, but find out as things start to pick up, it's actually sunk its teeth into you. Mm-hmm. While the plot hinges on this folklore around the bird, Seckel is adept at bringing it down to a very human level as each character in the small village explores their own loss, often internalizing the horrors of war that are too disturbing for them to say out loud. In this sense, it makes the reader think how mentally suffocating it must have been for people to leave the, the horrors of war behind, yet be expected to pick up where they left off in a small village where the gaps of so many who didn't make it back are still visible and where the random person next to you at the pub would never be able to understand the deep-seated grief you wade through just to get through the day. It makes me think mm. about like what's happening in the Ukraine yeah. or the Middle East right now. The Wild Hunt came out to great reviews. It hit a number of best of lists this summer and I guarantee you it will stick to your ribs long after you're done with it. So that's my second pick. All right. Very good. I have to read that one. I think you'd like Sounds that one, good. Dave. It's 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 really atmospheric and good. Um, for my third pick, I've, I'm setting death to the side. <laughs> Something a little more lighthearted. We've chatted about this one. It's nonfiction. It's Chuck Klosterman's The 90s. That was a fun read. It was a fun read. He's a Gen Xer, of course. He tackles what he posits is possibly the last definable decade, and perhaps from our post-9-11 perspective, the last true age of innocence. It's a very broad topic, of course, so he tries to capture the zeitgeist of the 90s in a single book. So he can't cover everything, but so he tries to pick and choose different cultural touchstones um, from that window between the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of the Twin Towers and kind of reflect on what the day-to-day reality of the last decade of the pre-internet, pre-social media age really was like. Um, Because I'm realizing more and more as I walk around, there's a lot of people who don't know that. But mm-hmm. who, who were born during or after that, and they never experienced that. You know, when the phone was still something that you used <laughs> mostly at home, it was tethered to a wall. MTV still played music videos, and if you liked a song, you bought the entire album. That's you right. didn't buy yeah. just a track. You watched TV shows like Seinfeld or Friends, your favorite, yes. Stace, and if you missed an episode and you hadn't set your VHS player, you had to wait for the summer rerun to see that episode. Yep. Right. Did, did you have the parties where you had friends around to, to watch friends every week? I did not. Mm. But I mean, I had kids by oh, then. Right. So yes, yes. I'm, I'm pretty old. So <laughs> we did that but with Twin I, Peaks. Did you ever do that with Twin I Peaks? I never watched Twin Peaks. Oh, X Files or X Files. We did X Files parties too. Yeah, I, I didn't watch that either. Twin Peaks. I we would just, show up with a log and a cherry pie. You know, I'm very limited in my TV watching. <laughs> it's very specific. <laughs> well, we should remember MTV also invented reality TV. Yes, they did. Um, the real world. The real world. And we waited till the next day to talk about it in class or around the water cooler. We didn't dissect it in real time with thousands of other people on social media the way Real Housewives of whatever mammoth is happening. Um, He also, in this book, reminds us of a kind of optimism that was brought on by projects like Biosphere 2, which was an attempt to recreate the Earth's biospheres in a giant greenhouse Mm -hmm. in Arizona, which was a colossal failure, and first introduced the world to Steve Bannon, and the nascent information superhighway, which became the World Wide Web, which of course was a colossal success and an incredibly disruptive one. It defined the entire 21st century so far. Mm -hmm. So um, it kind of like, you know, Brings us back to those times. And for those of us who are Gen X or older, this book is a little nostalgic walk down memory lane. Certainly, I've talked about the Zima chapter. Um, 
He says, no stories were viral, no celebrity was trending, the world was still big, the country was still vast, and you could still just be a little person with your own little life and your own little thoughts. You didn't have to have an opinion, and nobody cared if you did or did not, which is, I think, kind it of was, perspective. It was a really fun book to read, and rem- it reminded me of a lot of things that I hadn't thought about in a long time. and. That made it like, oh, yeah, <laughs> like Zima. <laughs> Zima, You know, right. I like, kind of forgot that it existed. <laughs> you, but... you can't get that anymore, can you? No, they tried to bring it back a few years ago. And of course, like the yeah. first time it was a, another colossal failure. And, and I, <laughs> I think, think it's why. it's given way to all these, you know, new... White Claw yeah, and the, all, all the other things. kind of things. Yeah. They just yeah. had the wrong name and it was the wrong time, yeah. the wrong spokesperson. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever drink Zima, Dave? Of course. <laughs> I wish oh. I'd have kept a six-pack or yeah, something. Exactly. Yeah, right, just for, you know, yeah. show your kids. <laughs> <laughs> so that's The 90s by Chuck Klosterman. My fourth pick is also a bit fun. Um, it's back to being a novel. It's Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt. A lot of people I know have also Mm -hmm. read and enjoyed this book. It's a first novel from that author. It's light. It's fun. It's quirky. It's about an aging widow, Tova, who lost, you know, in a reasonable period of time, her husband, her brother, and her son. And she gets a job cleaning at a local aquarium in the Puget Sound area each evening. And over the course of this, she injures her foot and realizes, despite having numerous friends, being alone as a widow, she might need to move into a senior housing facility. And while she's at the aquarium, she befriends Marcellus, the resident Pacific giant octopus, who gets his own voice and his own chapters and provides some of the comic relief in the book. He's very much a misanthrope. That's another big word for the yes. day. We can add that next to ept and osteo. osteo. At any rate, uh, Marcellus is a misanthrope, um, not just because he's been captured and from the wild, but also just by nature. He's very proud of being the smartest brain in the room. He's very clever and adept at escaping his tank each night to snack on the other creatures in the aquarium. And these bits about Marcellus's intelligence and gallivanting around are based in fact. Van Pelt did her research, as those of you who read Cy Montgomery's The Soul of an Octopus will realize those kinds of things really happen. Tova and Marcellus bond, despite not really being able to communicate other than by gestures. In the meantime, a young man by the name of Cameron ends up in this small, gossipy town in search of his father. As the three separate storylines begin to converge, Marcellus the octopus starts to understand things the humans do not. Hijinks ensue. (laughs) The ending is sweet. It's touching. It's satisfying. It's a story that resonated with a lot of readers this year. It got great reviews and hit a number of summer best of lists. That's Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt. It's on my to-be-read list. And, it you know, it reminds me, if anybody watched The Octopus Teacher, Mm -hmm. that, you know, you learn a lot about octopus from that movie and mm-hmm. you know obvious soul of an octopus and others. yeah they're having a moment too. yeah for sure just like people being able to predict their own death <laughs> these things come in waves <laughs> octopuses dave. Uh, octopuses yes <laughs> thank you dave octopuses come in waves yeah yes there you go the- it's so punny. Dad humor from <laughs> Dave Leonard at the bookie joint. Stop it and give him a quarter. So my final pick goes back to the serious. This is a slim volume of poetry. It's called Time is a Mother by Ocean Vuong. It came out this spring. 
Wong is a poet who won attention and awards with his first collection of poetry that came out a number of years ago, but really broke out with his novel that many of you read, On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous, mm-hmm. in 2019. That was a small word of mouth book that garnered incredible feedback and attention far more than just from the poetry world. Vuong is a Vietnamese American. His grandfather was an American soldier. He himself was born in Vietnam, but he and his mother spent time in a refugee camp in the Philippines before finally making it to the States. Vuong told a reviewer around the time that the novel came out, his mother, who was a semi-literate Asian American immigrant who worked in a nail salon, went to the hospital with back pain and was sent home with a heating pad, one of those things you peel and stick to your back. I'm very familiar with those. He brought her back himself to the hospital. And since Wong speaks English, the doctor was able to work with them and determine she actually had stage four breast cancer that had spread to her spine. So, you know, they were, it was mother and son for most of his life, right? Um, His mother didn't fully understand his work as a poet. She would go to his poetry readings and instead of facing her son in the audience, she would position her chair to face the audience and tell Vuong afterward that she would finally begin to understand his poems by looking at the facial reactions of the attendees, which I thought was a very powerful Mm -hmm. thing to say. That was from an interview he did. She died after that novel came out and working through the grief of her death, you know, during the pandemic resulted in this collection of poetry called Time as a Mother. It is written in his lyrical style, but is unflinchingly personal in dealing with grief, despair, addiction, longing, and ultimately survival. I think it speaks to many of us who lost people, especially in the last couple of years for a variety of reasons, you know, not just COVID, ultimately because there's also a resilience in this collection that comes out. And in fact, the last poem, which is called Woodworking at the End of the World, ends with a line... I remembered my life as an axe handle mid swing remembers the tree. I was free, you know, and I thought that was such an interesting line as an axe handle remembers the tree mid swing. Like, you know, you're going forward and there's something, there's a reason, right? Yeah. So, um, again, this book has a, I think it's resonated with a lot of people again, because it, it deals with grief, but also coming through grief and processing, processing, through which a lot of people are dealing with these days, right? Um, the, one of the reviews from The Guardian had a great line about Wong's writing. It, it's quotes, there's something about Wong's writing that demands all of your lungs, which is true. And I think that's a very powerful statement about Ocean Vuong. So this is Time as a Mother. It's out now. You can get it at the library or the bookstore. Um, it, I can't recommend it highly enough. You mentioned earlier that people are looking for cathartic books. Mm-hmm. Is this... And another example of of that. Yeah, I think so. In, in the sense that um, you're experiencing someone else go through that catharsis, mm-hmm. right? It's someone yeah. else's process mm-hmm. that, you know, many of us have lost people in the last couple of years. And so we're all in various stages. And sometimes it's a close personal friend right. or family member. And sometimes it's a little bit more distant. Um, and so we, we kind of look to others' experiences to show us a pathway through. Right. And what's nice about poetry, and I don't read a whole lot of poetry, Mm -hmm. but I've become more attuned to it in recent years, is it's so brief and you can pick it up and you can set it down and you can revisit Mm -hmm. it and what have you. This is a very, very slim volume. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So those are my five picks. They don't quite stand up to Dave's, maybe a little bit different. You're being too modest. They were. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually fishing for compliments yes. there. 
Um, <laughs> speaking of fishing for compliments, let's go on to the final five picks. Hey, Stace. I don't have any books about fishing. None are about fishing. They're all... No, we'll invite your husband on. Lynn. Yeah, he's, he's okay. the guy there. All right. Well, like you, Christopher, a couple of the books that I chose for my final five of the year... Um, I've talked about before, mm-hmm. so I've just mentioned them briefly. The first one and probably probably my favorite book of this year was Love and Saffron by Kim Fay. Um, this was an epistolary novel. It's very slim. Like, mm-hmm. like you said, it was published in February of this year. It's set in the early to mid-1960s, and these two women connect get connected by a recipe and a gift of saffron. So um, Joan, who lives in Los Angeles, sends um, Imogene, who lives in Washington State, some saffron because Imogene had published a recipe that required that. And she said in her article, accompanying article or letter, you know, that she published, um, I don't really know what saffron is. And so that's, right. they get connected and they start writing letters back and forth. And this goes through the Kennedy assassination and, you know, all the tumultuous times, the start of Vietnam and all the tumultuous times and the progress that's being made in the 60s. Um, and they really, even though they're separated by decades, Imogene could be Joan's mother. Mm-hmm. They have a very level friendship and they truly just love each other. And I cried at the end. It was real, talk cathartic. about cathartic. So um, just a beautiful story of friendship and um, how people grow and change over time and how they can be impacted by another person. Right. And for me also, what I loved about this book was the nostalgia it gave me for letter writing. Right. And, you know, do you remember what it was like, like how magical it was to come home and have a letter in like to you in the mail or when, you know, like when I was in college or whatever, Mm -hmm. I just... I feel bad. I said this before, but I'll say it again. I feel bad for kids today that will never really experience that. Right. You know that what that's like. And you so. reread the letter. Yeah. Times. Right. You save it, mm-hmm. and I mean, I think I still have a few from somewhere, but it just was the. It was so neat. Well, because also I think we discussed this before. You put effort into a letter that you don't put into an email yes. right, or a text. You think about what you want to write, what its meaning is, how the other person might interpret it. Absolutely. So there's a little bit more into a letter, I yeah. think. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. you have to start it over again because you make a mistake and it looks messy. I mean, and it's the physical side of it as well. Yes. It's, it's, you, it's you, the person that wrote it was physically writing it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's different than... A keyboard. You see their penmanship. Yeah. You see yes. their mistakes. Yeah. So yeah, awesome. that was Love and Saffron. Uh, the next book we also talked about on the podcast, we both read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. This is by Gabrielle Zevin. This came out in July 2022. It is on multiple, multiple top books yeah. of this year. This is Gabrielle Zevin's second novel. She also wrote The Storied Life of A.J. Ferky or 
Frickey Frisky. or something. Fickery. I think it's Fickery. Yeah. I think it was just adapted. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah so, um, but this is a story of Sam and Sadie. They are, they meet as children in the hospital. Not that they're both patients, but they meet in the hospital and they develop this strong friendship via playing a video game or is that what you, mm-hmm. the game, you know, it's, you're doing it's this with the, your hands. Yeah. I'm doing the, the <laughs> motions with the, the buttons with my hands, even though I don't know how to do the buttons because I don't play video games. Um, but anyways, they, they meet playing um, this game. I think it's Mario Kart or something like Mar- with Mario in it, but they, they meet as kids and then they drift apart for a time and they reconnect as college students in Boston. And, it's during this time that they really cement their relationship. They are both avid game players and they develop together this game called Ichigo, which becomes this huge success. And this grows into this huge company and they go through you know, changing from young adults to adults Mm -hmm. that have to manage this huge uh, corporation. They have all of these life traumas and some, you know, very, um, very shocking traumas that, that happen to them that they have to overcome and get through. And the, it was just a great story that talked about love and loss and heartbreak and friendship at the end of the day. And I, you know, like you were mentioning about one of the books that you read, Dave, like coming back to it, I kept coming back, Mm -hmm. like thinking about these characters. And uh, that's why I really loved that this was... um, It was just a beautiful story. You know, it stuck with me too. You know, afterwards, it's one of the books this year that I think I've thought a lot about in weeks after Mm -hmm. I finished it. Because to you, to your point, it's they're not romantic lovers, but they are two people who love each other over time. Right, everything that kind of goes into that and the ebbs and flows of it, um, I thought was really powerful. And you don't want them to be no, like you don't ever like. Sometimes you read books and you have the two best friends, and you just come on, just get together already. You don't want that for these two because their friendship is so pure, right? And um, yeah, it just, just really got into the human condition i i felt in 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 a more modern time um so that was tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow um great christmas gift <laughs> you need to give a gift to somebody ever i think a lot of people would really enjoy that um the next book um is a memoir that i read and i loved it's called taste my life through food by stanley tucci <laughs> And I love Stanley Tucci. He's one of my favorite actors. He published this book in October of 2021. It combines... So I love him and I love cooking. And at the end of every chapter, there's a recipe of his. So um, that made it really fun. Um, And if you're a fan of Stanley Tucci, you have to get this book and keep it on your shelf. You know, he lost... He was... He's married now for the second time, but he lost his first wife to cancer um, several years ago. And he, you know, as he's going through his life story, when he gets to that part, he, 
he tells this story like with with love and compassion and pathos, but he doesn't get all like maudlin and you know all heavy right. heavy handed. You right. know, he just kind of this is what happened, and this is how it affected me and my kids, and this is what we did, and um. He handles it in such a beautiful way, and his recipes are. I I'm excited to try them, especially his martini recipe, which <laughs> he kind of went viral on TikTok. Oh, really? He was on TikTok, so you know maybe that gives TikTok some legitimacy. I don't know, but it's just his stories. He's it's funny, it's touching. I mean, I laughed out loud at a few of the stories that he told. Um, he just seems like a really good dude. Is cooking, uh, like a catharsis for him? Do you think it's, I think it definitely yeah. is. Yeah. And you know, the, now he spends a lot of, you know, time. I don't know. He lives in England. Okay. And so I don't, I think he's kind of, he, although we just saw him in some Netflix show, I think he played a, a murderer. It was quite good. I'll put it on the web. I'll put it put in it the, the show website. notes. Yeah. Um, but anyways, Stanley, we love you. Come on the podcast. We'll have you anytime. Your book was great. Okay. The next book <laughs> is called Wahala and it's by Nikki May and it was published in January of 2022. I think I might, I think I've talked about it on the, the podcast before, but um, Wahala in one of the, there's many Nigerian languages. Mm-hmm. Wahala in one of them means trouble. And so this this story, this book is the story of four Anglo-African women who are trying to navigate relationships and getting older in the 21st century. So if you combined Sex in the City and How Stella Got Her Groove Back and Waiting to Exhale all into <laughs> one book and then set it in London... This is, you have Wahala here. That's a compelling sell right there. It was really good. It was really, you know, these women are a a little bit younger than I am, but, you know, having gone through, having walked their path, Mm -hmm. you know, for several of them, um, it was really fun, fun to kind of go back and revisit that time in one's life. And um, the four women are, are very different. Three of them have been friends for years. And then one of them, the fourth one, she kind of comes in and throws them all into a, she'd be like the Samantha of the group. (laughs) You know, she kind of throws them all into a a spiral and upsets the whole apple cart. And they all spend the novel trying to get rebalanced again. But, um, so such fun characters, like, you want to go out and have drinks with these women. Cause Sounds like a fun they're, book. They're going to be really fun. Yeah, it was. It was super, super fun. And I enjoyed every minute of it. And in our office, our special ed director, Namdi, is from Nigeria. And I could go and say, oh, look at this word. Here's, you know, I would share with him the words that I was learning. And he, <laughs> he would, would always say, head. well... That's not the language that I speak, but right. it's this language. So, um, but it was interesting to learn, you know, I got to learn a little bit about Nigeria, yeah. what it's like to live there through this book. So That's that awesome. that was really a bonus. That's great. So really fun. 
And my last book um, that I chose for this year is an old, it's the only older book that that I chose, like way older. This was published in July, 2014. And it's written by Taylor Jenkins Reid, who had a book that came out this year. Mm -hmm. Carrie Carrie Soto Soto is back. Sorry to say, not one of my favorites, but this book of hers that she published in 2014 is called After I Do. Uh And it was beautiful. It really, I mean, I think... This was the way I remember Taylor Jenkins read writing, and I mm-hmm. think I've read all of her books now. Mm-hmm. But this story tell is about Lauren and Ryan. They're a married couple. They're not. They haven't been married very long, but they've been together for a while. But they're they reach a rough patch, mm-hmm. and they're like, okay, this isn't working, and they decide we're going to split up for a year. We're going to go our separate ways. We're going to do whatever we want to do. We're going to live apart. We're not going to talk or communicate in any way for a year. And then in a year, we'll come back and we'll decide what we're doing. And yeah, it's, I don't think most people would choose that (laughs) method to, you know, like try to fix a marriage or anything, but, but that's what they do. And the, the first half of the book goes back and forth between when they first, how they first got together and leading up to them getting married. And then the second half of the, you know, and them Mm -hmm. splitting up. And then the rest of it is when they're, they're apart and, you know, the, the resolution, which I'm not going to give away, but, um, it, you know, anybody that has been in a long-term relationship will absolutely know what, they're going through, right? And how hard it is. Like you, you've, doesn't matter how long you've been with a person, you get married, it changes things and you've got to work through the whole relationship again and figure it out in this new context. Um, it was, I just, I loved it. I was so sad when it was over. I was so sad when it was over because I liked these characters so much. I wanted to see what what happens next? So is it is it uh, kind of like her other books where the character, each character kind of gets its own, their own chapter or story or is it? Yeah, a little bit, a okay. little bit of that. Yeah, not, it's not quite as pronounced throughout mm-hmm. the, the whole story. Like the structure changes mm-hmm. in in the novel, like midway through the novel, the structure changes a little bit, so... But this is my list. I just loved it. It was great. And I'm, I'm so sorry if, you know, that I, I was kind of disappointed in Carrie Soto is bad. I was so excited to read it because I love tennis. (laughs) I love Taylor Jenkins read. Not everyone can be perfect. But you you chose a redemptive title. I I did. I did. And, you know, still, still love her as an author. Is, is, Is she selling at the bookstore? Uh, yes, not so much that one. Yeah, but, um, I think the word is word is out a little bit on that. Um, I I didn't think we were allowed to take uh, choose something that was. Not <laughs> oh, so, I'm sorry. That's all right. Did I break the it's rules? Your, she broke the rules. I'm sorry. It's your show. <laughs> you make the rules. It, when I look through all the books that I read, you know, and I had to really consider what my top five were, I had to go. I had to put this one on the list. 
You're allowed. That's fine. We well, can and I have, it. you know, I did talk about Carrie Soto's back, so that's <laughs> yeah. from this year. But um, I was just reading, though, I think there was a New York Times article the week that we were recording this, which is like the second week of December, about, is it the Times or one of the other news sites, um, about people who are married and choosing to stay married, but living apart. And there's a phrase that describes it. I forget what Mm. it is, living together apart or something like that, where the husband and wife will either move to separate areas of the house or have entirely separate apartments. And this has come up twice as a way to kind of save the marriage, you know, whether it's forever or just for a period of time. So I've actually heard of two situations just like that. Yeah. Real, real people, not books, but real, mm-hmm. real people that are yeah. doing that. And one of the situations, this couple has been doing this for like 25 years. I could understand I that. I mean... Yeah. Not that I would do it personally, but it's, yeah. my first thought was like, who can afford two homes? <laughs> Especially in New York. But yeah, I guess yeah. it's a thing. I, I don't know. But this was... It was really enjoyable. It was really good. Cool. Well, we'll have it on our on our show page. So that's that's my list. It was a great list, Ace. I, I Excellent think, choices. Well, thank you. It was very apt. Yes, I meant to. I I wrote down in my notes to use ep Must for use. for Stanley Tucci. I and I and I forgot to that his his recipes were very apt. <laughs> He's an apt cook. He's an apt cook. Chef. <laughs> Bartender. I want to read that book for sure. It's it was really it was really good. I'd be laughing out loud reading it, and my husband would be like, "What are you laughing at?" Oh, let me read you this part. Oh no, don't. <laughs> <laughs> but see, that goes back to the very first book that Dave talked about, like that relationship you have with the printed word and what it causes your body to do, right? Yep. yep. And it, it when I, when you were describing that book, I was thinking of this copy of Little Women that I had when I was a kid that I probably read 10 times that had a purple cover and gold embossed writing of the title and the author. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, that really is so true how the physical book can Somehow, stick with you. Yeah. And it yeah. feels like it's the real book. We we get people in the store all the time who are mostly looking for kids' books that they knew it as they, a kid. They loved as a kid yes. to get for either their kids or someone else's. And a lot of the time that the physical copy now is not the same. Right. You know, the, the artwork might be slightly different or the format or something. And somehow it just doesn't feel like the real right. book to them. Right. It's not right. Yes. No, that's so true. That's part of the reason why kids' books stay in print so long is yeah. because parents and grandparents want to have that same experience with their, their kids, right? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So let me ask you this. Do people come into the bookstore and smell books? <laughs> Surreptitiously. When, um, <laughs> people always say that they like the smell of the store. They always say that, but it's not just the the books. There's other other things there that, other things that, that smell. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from uh-huh. the staff, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, I will be in the store on Saturday because I have a bit of shopping to do. Yep. Excellent. So I will. I will be there myself. Well, great. Yep. Enjoy buying books and other things. But listeners, thank you, thank you so much for joining us for this top five edition, top fifteen. Top 15. I guess. 
I guess, edition right? of the Oxygen Starved Podcast. And Dave, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. For joining us again. Suffering well, hopefully we can do it next this. year. I hope and so. Maybe you can um, get some of those martinis that you have. Oh, <laughs> next year we'll do it with martinis. I that would that would take this podcast to a whole, whole other level. level. Exactly. <laughs> We'd probably get sponsors after that one. Maybe. And listeners, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us and your continued support of the Oxygen Starve podcast. Remember that you can find us on Instagram at O2Starved or our website, oxygenstarvedpodcast.com. Um, we appreciate you all so much. We wish you the happiest of holidays. Be safe. And we'll see you again in 2023. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. Incompetech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.